All right. So I'm here with M.G. Precioso, and you can tell me how you'd like that pronounced. Um, I'd like you first to just go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about uh, who you are and what you're up to. Yeah, great. You did pronounce that correctly, by the way. So, you know, no, no corrections here. Um, yeah, my name is MG. I am a fifth year PhD student at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. And my research area is sort of twofold, but concerns children's reading and children's literature broadly. So I'm looking on the more empirical end on how kids get absorbed or immersed in, in fiction and how that might influence certain outcomes like reading motivation and then also social emotional development. And then on the more philosophical, more theoretical end, I'm also working with my advisor, one of my advisors who's a philosopher to think more critically about you know what literature can offer us, the cognitive value of literature and how we might be a bit more um, yeah, a, a bit more, I guess, reflective and intentional about how we are leveraging those benefits when we teach English literature to K through 12 um, students. So that's, that's super yeah. interesting. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I found you uh, through this paper that's posted um, in a few places. Um, I think I found it through Springer. Um, it's called Enchantment and Understanding in Philip Pullman's Dark Materials, Advancing Cognition Through Literature. Um, this was a super interesting paper. Uh, I really enjoyed getting to read it here. And um, I was wondering how you uh, kind of came upon that uh, lens of enchantment and um, and then sort of on the other side of that, like why his dark materials, why Philip Pullman in particular? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll come back to the, the Philip Pullman piece, but I, or the piece of your question, but I think he's he was so perfect for what I was trying to argue and that it just felt like no other work of YA literature would would really compare and what I was trying to do and what he was doing. So, but yeah, enchantment, I think as a concept, I first came across this when I was in my early graduate work, I read um, a piece by Rita Felsky called, it's the, the book is called Uses of Literature, and then she has a, a chapter on enchantment, and I cite that in, in the paper quite heavily. And so I came across that and just felt like it really encapsulated what, what I experienced, especially when I was a child reader, and what I, I felt was somewhat missing from educational settings. And, you know, my PhD has an educational focus, so it, it felt like the right thing to, to bring up. But I also sort of realized my undergraduate work was in English literature, and I did a thesis that was on children's literature as well. And a lot of the, the research I did for that was dealing with enchantment in one way or another, you know, thinking about why kids get so intensely involved in stories and the benefits of that. So that was sort of how I came to the to the topic and to the idea. And then Pullman just felt, and I guess we can talk a little bit more in depth about this, yeah. but you know, I think enchantment for me and certainly for Felsky and for others, I know I'll just cite Maria Tatar in here because she was such a big part of my uh my college career and and um my graduate work as well but she has a book called Enchanted Hunters and she has a similar argument about 
how beauty and horror are these two ends of the spectrum in children's literature and how they catalyze intellectual curiosity for kids. And so there's this sort of aesthetic value to, you know, the, the sort of like glittering golden arrows that guide the way to Neverland or, or other sort of moments of horror. Like if we're talking about Pullman, you know, when the heart is pulled from that bear, that's a pretty, pretty horrific moment. And so there's, but there's also a bit of curiosity embedded within those that then catalyze, catalyze further uh, a sense of wonder or just wanting to know more or, you know, read more. And so there is this link between enchantment and curiosity that I, I felt had already sort of been elaborated on in, in other work that I, I thought would be a really great link to, to education. And I, I think that is the thing about enchantment is yes, it's delightful. It's beautiful, but it also catalyzes a sense of wonder. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if we're talking about knowledge and intellectual curiosity, Pullman really does that so well throughout his series that is really the crux of what his whole or at least for me the crux of what a lot of what his dark materials is grappling with is like you know this idea of knowledge and mm. and this move from innocence to experience and so it just felt like thematically if I was going to write on enchantment and use a work of literature to explore it Pullman felt like such a natural choice <laughs> yeah absolutely and so you did you read that as a as a kid growing up and and it kind of stuck with you or do you go back and reread it like how how did you come upon Pullman's work in the first place yeah so okay i actually i was such a bookworm when i was a kid and fantasy i read everything i could get my hands on but pullman was like the one i think well known fantasy series that i did not read as a kid and i hmm. think what happened was my dad bought the golden compass and so we had it in our house but i think i was like just a little bit too young okay. and so i think i picked it up a little too early wasn't really getting all of the, you know, the themes, the thematic value. And then I think I read part of it and then, you know, got sidetracked and probably one of the new Harry Potter books came out and I was like, okay, whatever, you know, and just was a, like a little too young. And so I revisited it more thoroughly when I was in uh, my early twenties, right after college. And I was like, how have I not read this before? This is amazing. And so I, yeah, I actually, what I would do, this is maybe too much info, but you know, it doesn't matter, um, is I was working downtown and I had about a 30, 35 minute walk to work every day. And so I listened to the first, the first book, The Golden Compass on audiobook, which was, it audio was, first is of all, incredible. It's great. Yeah. For, it was the best part of my day. Uh, just being like, oh, I can't wait to get to, you know, to start my commute so I can continue listening to it. So that was also, you know, it made the day a bit more interesting, more, <laughs> more vibrant, but um, yeah, because he writes in such a beautiful lyrical style, it was kind of the perfect thing to be able to hear it read. Um, so yeah, so that's what I did. That was how I sort of like arrived at it as an adult and then could, I think, appreciate it even more. Hmm. That's super interesting. Yeah. So I think that controls for an element of nostalgia or, you know, you have a, a bias towards the work because you read it at a formative time or something. And I mean, maybe that's still possible, but I, you, so you're, you know, a scholar of these things and, and you have to look at them a bit more critically. Does that change how you think about enchantment? Is enchantment something that is, is as accessible when you're putting on that scholar cap and sort of analyzing a thing? Or does it happen more naturally more powerfully for the the younger person or the person who's coming to a work without as much kind of self 
awareness or without as much objectivity, I dare say, like, do you, how do you kind of weigh that in your work? Because um, I know that you're, you know, talking about this as this is, you know, um, part particularly for, for K-12 education, but then yourself, you're coming to it later with a sort of different approach. So, and that's the thing I think about a lot in terms of innocence and experience, um, how, how that uh, bears on education and about you know, particularly about reading, which I think is kind of central. So yeah, that's a lot, but just how, how do you, how do you yeah. tackle that? Yeah. I mean, I can, I can talk about just for me, but I will say there's a lot of debate in this area. In the paper, I talk about just in the, in the realm of literary theory, there's quite a lot of debate about how you're supposed to analyze a text. And this is Felsky's overarching argument too, is that there, there was this this case that you need to be detached from a text in order to really analyze it critically. And Felsky's making the point that, okay, not necessarily. And, you know, you can sort of unite this critical eye with, with a, a glance or, or a, a focus on the more effective, effective, mm -hmm. um, you know, more emotional qualities of a text. And, um, you know, I think the emotions that we have function cognitively too. So I think that's a part of it, but yeah, I mean, for me, I think uh, being enchanted by something there, I think of it in, in different stages or layers. So there maybe is the initial sort of like, wow, that's a really beautiful piece of prose or, oh, wow, I'm really hooked or invested in this narrative. But I also think the more that I've gone back and analyzed even the stuff I read when I was a kid and found new things that I was not necessarily thinking about when I was a child, I mean, I remember going back through Harry Potter. I was writing on a little bit of that for my dissertation and I was of the Harry Potter generation for sure. Um, and so, you know, I have a real nostalgic attachment to that entire series because I was growing up as the books were coming out. Um, but I sort of started to realize a bit more a bit more in depth what she was doing with even just weaving the the color green through the sort of like the the Avada Kedavra curse is green and Harry's eyes this embodiment mm -hmm. of his mother's love are both green and you know how it becomes this larger symbol of her love transcending death and you know love overpowering death and it's just things like that to me that is a different kind of enchantment that maybe is what we're getting at is like the deeper in or the more invested you get into a text the more you can you can actually derive meaning from it. And there, there is some value in that in education settings, like getting kids, teaching them how to do that and, and having it not ruin the magic or the, the experience, but actually having it enhance, enhance their experience. I like that approach a great deal. And I wonder then, I guess my next question would be like, so what does it look like to teach these books in a classroom setting? Does it mean in order to not mess up the enchantment of them that we have to really radically change kind of how the classroom looks and feels and is and is perceived by students you know in order to um, enable and promote that kind of reading that kind of immersion and enchantment um, yeah I guess just like how do you do that have yeah that's that? a great question um, yeah I mean I think so part of my dissertation is is really starting to think about that question of pedagogy because you know it's one thing to have the theory and then another thing to try to think okay so for different age groups too like how do you make this developmentally appropriate at the high school level or at the you know the middle school level or or whatever I mean I think one place to start and this is something I've been thinking about more theoretically is and it's related to enchantment I think um 
but it also has its own separate identity, which is, I think a lot of the way that we engage with English or ELA, I guess, English language arts instruction in the US is information based. And if you look at the curriculum, it's sort of like, okay, well, you know, if we're talking about Hamlet, what happens in act two, scene three, or, you know, why does the character make this choice? And I'm sort of looking going, all right, that's not enchantment at all. I mean, that's not even conceptual understanding. What, what are we trying to do here? So I think step one is, is making the case that, as I was saying earlier, you know, what is literature for? Like, if not for information, what do we get from literature and laying out? Okay, so we get enchantment. We have conceptual understanding. There is a link between feeling invested in the story and also the, the you know, sort of thematic complexity you might then have access to as a result of being enchanted or immersed or whatever. Um, but then it also is just asking the kinds of questions that will engage students more thoroughly and more deeply with with the themes and um, and the meaning of the text in a way that transcends just the factual and the informational. And so I think that's really the, the focus for me is figuring out what those questions look like, you know, open-ended questions, questions that are going to engage with the layers of meaning that are going to relate to kids' own lives beyond beyond just like, oh, you know, Lyra experienced, uh, you know, a betrayal from her mother. So I have also experienced like a betrayal from my <laughs> mother or father figure, you know, getting a bit more in depth with, with um, the symbolic layers of a character's experience or the descriptive language. And so, yeah, you ask a really big question, but I think ultimately like transitioning from information-based questions to more conceptual, more um, more meaningful questions could be a place to start. Yeah, I, I think teaching literature in different settings, um, I've always really enjoyed being the one asking questions and then letting the students respond. Um, I think personally, I was really a shy kid growing up and I wouldn't have liked a discussion-based class, you know, of that kind. So I would have gravitated more towards like, then I will have them do some writing, you know, and I, I always liked the writing part, that was fine. So giving them sort of multiple ways of, of engaging with it. Um, but yeah, and I think it's doable. I don't I don't ask that question to be like, haha, but to say, yeah. you know, I think it does require a certain amount of, um, uh, re reimagining, you know, what the classroom is like and what it's for, you know, and, and if the goals of standards and state mandates and things are more rigid and, and more uh, information based or what have you, um, that's not so good because it, it, it kind of prevents um, this kind of reading. And, and I think Pullman, I mean, you don't really touch on this in the paper, but maybe uh, you've read more of his kind of statements on this sort of thing. He He's pretty clear that, you know, when he was a teacher, he got to just sort of like tell stories, you know, and he imprints that into his work as well in lots of ways. Um, he sort of applies that life experience he had and, and he's pretty, uh, you know, uh, pretty, pretty critical of teaching mandates that, that don't allow for the teacher to tell stories or, you know, do things their own way. Um, yeah, yeah, anyway. Um, I feel like you've probably read this. I can't remember the name of the, he gave some, some sort of speech. I don't know if it was at Oxford or somewhere else, but it was mm. exactly what you're saying. And yeah. you've probably read it, but it was it was just sort of exactly what you mentioned, this, this like sort of the rigidness of English 
instruction or the standards and the assessments are really, really killing students' joy of reading. And that's a sentiment that has been expressed more recently in the U.S. too. And it's, yeah, to me, it's, it's such a, it's such a big problem. And it's also so sad because you feel like, well, for the kids that aren't necessarily reading a lot outside of school, and if this is their main exposure to books and this is what we're giving them like that, you know, that's not, that's just not it. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of work to be, to be done, but I think, as you said, it is, I think it is doable and the writing assignments you can do a lot with, Hmm. with writing, you know, sort of like critical creative assessments, you know, that I think there's a lot that can be done there. Yeah. I, so I wonder then um, in terms of Pullman's storytelling and his dark materials, um, I think there's ways that he kind of in, incorporates this idea into the story. And you touch on a number of them, but I mean, the big one is probably Lyra's reading of the alethiometer, right? That's sort of like a, a symbolic uh, microcosm or something of like the whole activity um, of, of seeking truth, seeking knowledge, and that being a good thing, right? But also a complicated thing, a, a thing that has consequences. And um, and so I'd, I'd like to just ask you to like, spell out a little bit of what's going on in um, in the reading of the alethiometer. How does that um, show us, like maybe point us towards ways of um, of this sort of instruction or, or at least this sort of practice in the classroom? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I think the things that come to mind just right off the bat. So the first thing that I noticed, the, the way that he describes her um, reading it is he describes it like her brain. She was almost like going down a ladder to find the layers of meaning, if I remember correctly. And that's such a cool thing because you have the immediate decoding of sort of like you're looking at symbols and saying, oh, like, what does any of this mean? Which I imagine is akin to a younger kid starting to really read fluently and trying to get the hang of things. And so there is a bit of of a, you know, a challenge associated with it. And so I feel like just from that standpoint, you know, like encouraging kids through that sort of process as they're starting to read fluently. Um, And then the fact that there are different layers of meaning. So like sometimes if I also, I don't want to misquote anything that he writes, but I'm pretty right there, like different symbols. And sometimes they mean different things depending on how the arrow is is going. And I mean, for, for that, for literary analysis, that's also just the perfect way of encouraging kids to have some creative freedom with how they're interpreting a text and how they're interpreting a symbol. Um, you know, if you're looking at the great Gatsby and you're looking at the green light, there are many ways to interpret that that and and so not shying away from you know so you can still be grounded in the text I guess but have some creative freedom to how you are seeing what's happening in the text and not restricting kids based on one meaning which is what assessments do which is part of the challenge of Hmm. these assessments that we give kids is there's really only one answer and that's just not at all the case when you're actually looking at and interacting with a, a text it's much more dynamic so you know those are I think the more practical things but more symbolically, I mean, I just love, I love everything about what he does with the alethiometer and how it's dust, the knowledge is, the the dust as a symbol for knowledge is what's driving the alethiometer. And so this idea that like knowledge is, is 
the means to truth and the more that you are open to accessing, you know, the, the more that you can interpret about the world around you, the more questions you can ask, the more you can learn. So I think that's also just a really lovely message to send to kids and that, that it's beautiful, you know, that the dust and the alethiometer are, are the, both these like golden, gorgeous objects that there's, there's a real power in that too, that learning and information or knowledge or understanding, whatever you want to call it is has, there's a beauty to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could keep going. I think this is yeah. part of why it's so fun to write this paper is because there were so many different <laughs> layers to how I could take what he had embedded in the text and, and apply it to education. So yeah. And so you've mentioned a couple times uh, other works, right? So the the Harry Potter series coming out shortly after Philip Pullman or around the same time, roughly. And then, uh, you know, The Great Gatsby or something like that. In the paper, you talk about uh, James Joyce, Portrait of the Artist mm -hmm. as a Young Man, Artist as a Young Man. Um, so there's there's sort of these, like, there's aspects of reading deeply, you know, imaginatively the given work, the, the thing. But then there's also something to be said for the kind of connections that happen across works, right? Or the way that works respond to other works that that generate kind of a wider uh, field of symbolic meanings that you can sort of like draw on later, right? And associate and stuff like that. And so I wonder, you know, how, how does this um, impact the like the curriculum or the canon even? Um, is it a matter of um, assigning books to students and, you know, making sure that they read them and, and do the assignment, whatever. Um, is it a matter more of just like introducing them to this uh, library of great writing that's out there and, and sort of letting them go and choose things? Like um, that that's an aspect of this that I'm, I'm really curious about is um, one thing that happens in the classroom is that a book gets assigned. And then as soon as it's assigned, it becomes work you know, and it's like, you have to do it. And so that sort of automatically for a lot of students, a lot of the time, just um, short circuits any, you know, joy because they're like, oh, well, it's work, you know? And so I wonder, I wonder how much that aspect of it being freely chosen, you know, is, um, I don't know how much that's like supported by, by scholarship out there, but, but anecdotally, I feel like that's really a, an important aspect of it. And it's not like there's a shortage of great things to read, you know, it's just a matter of letting kids sort of choose the thing they want in that moment. Um, but on the other hand, well, you know, there's the discipline of like having to actually read it by a certain time so you can move on. I, I don't know, um, how, how do you how do you navigate that, uh, that, that freedom of choice versus, well, we've got to read something? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. I mean, I think as you were talking, I was thinking about the, just to go back quickly to Lyra reading the Obithiometer, you know, she reads it pretty freely when she's yeah. a kid. And then once she goes at the end of the Amber Spyglass, she can't really read it in the same way anymore. And I think it's John Barr or someone's like, basically like you need to, whatever we have is worth working for. Like you have to relearn you know, more extensively. And to, I, I don't know how I feel about that metaphor for what we're talking about, but I'm just going with it because it was what I was thinking of as you were talking. But, you know, you do reach a point, I guess, in, in education where there's a satisfaction, but also an extra degree of commitment to analyzing um, texts, whether you feel like you want to, if they're required or not. And I think that's just part of the, maybe part of the discipline of of getting older and, you know, 
going through K through 12 and even college schooling. But I also think there is a way to give students more freedom of choice. And I I don't know what your experience uh, has been. I, I was a, um, a tutor, especially during the pandemic. So I gave kids like some amount of choice and then tried to tried to navigate that. And so there was a bit more freedom though, because it wasn't a K through 12 classroom setting. It was like, you know, a separate sort of after hours tutoring thing. So I did have more freedom, but I, I did notice that they enjoyed being able to choose stuff and get invested in it. So I, I wonder if there is a way to balance those two things or even like in framing texts, like sometimes to introduce some of the harder Shakespeare texts, you know, Mm -hmm. people will pair it with like, you know, Hamlet and the Lion King or, you know, there are (laughs) places within (laughs) those sorts of, (laughs) you know, Claudius is to Scar, but, uh, you know, Hamlet is to Simba. I don't know. Um, yeah, but I think there has to be a way to, to encourage kids, but I also think it, as you said, it, it's, it's hard. You can't, I don't know that we could do a free for all necessarily, but who, I mean, who knows where education is going to be moving. So, yeah. yeah. That's that's a fair question. Like, I know the pandemic has shaken a lot of sort of foundational things, and so there's a kind of opportunity, perhaps, to 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 shake shake things up further, change things further. Um, the the school where I teach now is a is a choice school, an option school within the public system, and a lot of charter schools are out there that um, you know people are drawn to for various reasons. I I taught at charter schools before, and and then. Um, you know, there's all kinds of online options now and, and tutoring and, and things like that. So so it's a time, I think, that um, allows for a lot of experimentation and and possibilities um, that there's still uh, plenty of people who <laughs> get really riled up about whatever's being assigned, you know, and whether they think it's good or bad or whatever. Um, and that's probably good, right, that they have that they have a forum to go in and say what they think about that. Yeah. And so I guess I'm curious how how you feel like this um, this work of yours and the dissert- dissertation that you're doing now, the, the work you're doing now, um, how is that going to impact um, education or how do you hope that it would impact uh, education in, in a kind of more structural way or uh, a bigger way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the, so the research I'm doing on story world absorption, which is more empirical, and I'll just give like a two second summary of, so we're, you know, we're looking at my advisor, Paul Harris and I are looking at story world absorption in nine, 10 and 11 year old kids. And so basically there's been a good amount of research on how adults experience absorption in video games, in movies and books, but not so much with children. And so we have been working on that to try to get a sense of, you know, okay, we assume that children and experience absorption, but let's actually collect some data and see how they, you know, how they experience absorption, how they rate the dimensions of absorption. There are four dimensions of absorption that have been validated already mm-hmm. with adults. And so we adopted that scale and gave it to kids and then paired it with an interview. And all of that, I think, was meant to just gather some preliminary data about what kids enjoy reading this sort of like, whether you want to call it enchantment or absorption there, I think are differences between the two, but you know, for our intents and purposes, like story world immersion, which is you're hooked, you're excited, you're invested, you want to keep reading, you know, what does that look like for kids? And 
the findings were really reassuring. Uh, you know, granted, the sample size was 60 something children. So it's, you know, we want to collect more data. That's part of the next step is like collecting more data with more kids. But ultimately, across the kids who read every day, the kids who read only every so often for fun, they basically rated the four dimensions of absorption very similarly. And there was an indication that all kinds of kids and all kinds of readers have the capacity to be absorbed. And so what that tells me at least is like, okay, this is a very tech-centric way of looking at reading motivation. And the way that reading motivation has been conceptualized in the past has been largely character trait focused. Like, oh, you know, if kids are, are determined or if they have grit, like then they'll read and it'll be mm. great. And it puts the onus on the student in a way that I, I don't think is necessarily fair. I think you need a little bit of intrinsic motivation and, and there are other factors that are important. I don't want to oversell the role of the text. But anyway, all of that to say, I think my hope is that if there is a shift um, looking at how the text can influence how kids feel about reading and maybe enhance children's reading motivation, and that's a different way, then maybe that will get more kids reading. And maybe that can just be, you know, to your point about what are we help, what, you know, what texts are we giving kids and like, how are we choosing texts for kids? Maybe that will shed some light on how we can do that more effectively and maybe how we can get kids reading more frequently because frequent reading is correlated with, with achievement. So that's one thing I really hope that maybe my research will eventually help with. And, um, you know, you want to cultivate kids' passion for reading. So if that's a way to start thinking about that or think about it in a new way, then I would I would love that. So that's at least one thing. Yeah. I, so I wonder, yeah, so the frequency of reading is certainly a factor. Um, how much, if any, uh, does the... Um, does the quality of instruction matter? Like, did you rate the teachers in any way to see like they're more experienced or they're, I don't know, more beloved by their students or whatever like measure you wanted to use? Um, does that really, does that correlate as strongly or does it matter more like how much um, the student comes in like reading fluently? Is there is there one that's weighted more heavily? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, so I think that's a great question and something that we want to look into in future studies. We just looked at the kids to try to get okay. this preliminary sense. So we didn't interview teachers or uh, have teachers rate any, have kids rate teachers or okay. teachers students at all. Yeah. But I think it's a fair point, right? Like you can be absorbed in a text and how much does that, you know, if you're reading Harry Potter and you're reading it in a class and you have a really boring or horrible teacher, like, does that influence your absorption? Maybe the answer is no. Maybe it's like maybe. the text is so compelling that it doesn't matter. Or maybe there is a, a bit more of a balance between text and student and teacher, which tends to be, I guess, what the research says about instruction and the role mm -hmm. of education. Also parenting too, you know, right. so there are many factors at play, you know, text-centric your text forward modes of, of reading is not the only one, but yeah, it would be really interesting to, to get a, a better sense of how parent, teacher, student text are interacting with respect to reading motivation. So yeah, give me two years and I will okay. report back to you. <laughs> so I'll throw another on top there. Like as a kid, I feel like one of the biggest influences on me reading a book was another student telling me, you know, another kid my age or a little older, like seeing them reading it or knowing that they had read it and wanting to 
uh, be more like them or something, right? That imitation uh, factor is is really powerful. So there's there's a lot of sort of like sociological pieces here, I feel like. And, and I just, I mean, yeah, I think that promoting reading is probably one of the more important things uh, that we can do, I guess, as educators, as, as people studying and learning is to like, make sure that that next generation is engaged in that, in that work as well. And, and trusting that they will be in some form. You mentioned video games, like that's a, that's a hobby of mine. I'm really interested in possibly applying, you know, video games as texts in a classroom setting. I haven't yet had a chance to really do that, but we do have a class at my school now that does a Minecraft education class. Um, I did a video game studies class last year and and had mixed results, I'll say. Like, it was an experiment. Um, and I, I wonder, yeah, do you, do you have thoughts about, like, video games uh, supporting reading, uh, distracting from reading, just sort of another way to read? Like, what, what are your thoughts on the video game question? Yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say it's sort of like how books and movies can reinforce each other. I don't, I don't see it as all that different. I think it's very cool, especially with the virtual reality technology that's really, you know, coming into its own. And so I, I think it could be a really cool option. I mean, I just, so someone told me about this Harry Potter new video game that just came out recently, I guess. I haven't, I'm not admittedly, I don't know that much about video games. So I, <laughs> I, I can't really say exactly because um, I haven't played a lot of video games since I was a kid, but I feel like just based on the research with adults and how mm -hmm. absorption in video games has been studied, I would imagine it transfers over to, to kids and you could use that pretty effectively um, in tandem. I don't know. What was the mixed results from your from your classroom like sort of trial i mean a lot of kids ended up just playing games you know and not like doing a lot yeah, of the studies yeah, yeah. like just just the playing so yeah. the absorption is there i mean there's a lot of absorption <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the it's the the analysis piece that we're trying to um and maybe it's yeah. a matter of maturity right like uh i don't yeah. know i the thing about the video game studies that does kind of uh, make me concerned is like there's such a level there's such a degree of um of um i don't know mindless absorption that takes place with screens uh yeah. that it concerns me that that becomes more about just like hook them into that thing as long as possible make them you know click the button that pays me another little um amount of yeah. money or whatever it is you know and, and and not at all the kind of deep reading that that promotes uh, maybe a richer experience of the world or what have you, you know, just like those things do seem different. Uh, and, and it's, it's a little bit, it's a bit of a leap of faith to say like, it's okay that that kid is sitting there playing a video game in class all day, every day. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh yeah. You'll never hear. I feel like neither of us would ever condone that sort of, I mean, I think if you use them in tandem, I could imagine a world in which they could garner interest for the uh, one would enhance the other or it, to your point though I think that's tricky it's sort of like the kid who only watches the movies and doesn't read the books and it's mm -hmm. sort of like in my opinion I, I feel like you're you're missing out because exactly what you said it is when you're reading something your absorption 
is such where you still are cognitively processing, like you are doing the imaginative work, you are, you know, it's, it's a different kind of thing altogether than video games or even watching movies or TV, but it's not to say that movies or TV or virtual reality is bad. It's just sort of like they need to be used in, 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 uh, I don't know, in relation to one another. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, I think that's about the time that I've got here. My, my little clock is counting down. Um, I oh, wanted yeah. to invite you to say, you know, any final thoughts or or things that you're like really excited about studying next, along with the the sociological impacts on on reading. But um, but yeah, just uh, 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 fi final thoughts. Oh yeah, well, thank you for having me. First of all, it's so mm -hmm. fun. I love talking about Pullman. I love talking about YA literature. I mean, I guess for final thoughts, I am very excited to to keep pursuing studying absorption. I think anything, like I said, anything that maybe could get kids excited about reading, I am very excited for. I also think the work I'm doing, trying to sort of outline, like, why do we read literature? Why should we care about it? Why is this so valuable? I'm very excited about that. And I think it's interesting. I had a conversation with a friend recently who's in tech about artificial intelligence, and I'm not even going to get into the, the chat the situation. Um, that is more recent, but I think generally I have, I am of the opinion that literature for so many years was considered not, you know, not a means of, of utility because it was like STEM and computer science. And now I think that we need those kinds of skills, if you want to call them skills or that level of meaning making that you get from deep reading more than ever. So I, yeah, very committed to trying to figure out in the education space, how to promote that and get kids very enthusiastic about it. So yeah, those are my final thoughts. <laughs> I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you for joining me.